Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Subliminal messaging in media is pretty ridiculous, actually. Let's be honest. It's not something I've ever thought of putting in this podcast. I really don't feel the need. You love listening to Verbal Diorama. Verbal Diorama is your favourite podcast. Verbal is the new diorama. Keanu Reeves is the greatest actor of his generation. I mean, I know, Jess, it's ludicrous, isn't it? There's just no reason for it. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 87, Josie and the Pussycats. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And welcome once again, I am here with Jess, she is in the room. This is a very special episode because Jess, my cat, <laughs> has special dispensation to be in the room for a change. And um, yeah, we're doing Josie and the Pussycats, I mean, obviously... If you're a returning listener, welcome back to Verbal Diorama. And if you're a brand new listener, hello and welcome to Verbal Diorama. Um, uh, and Jess agrees with me. Mostly, uh, we hope that you're all keeping well. Um, and additionally, hope that you're enjoying this little kind of mini cult movie season that I'm doing. Uh, it's something that I really wanted to do in March. I started it with Big Trouble in Little China and then went into Krull. And now, Josie and the Pussycats. Um which, uh, I mean, I've got a lot to say about Josie and the Pussycats. So I also recently announced a brand new podcast that I'm going to be doing. It's called Rotoscoperama. Jess is very excited about it too. Uh, and that's going to solely focus on animated movies. I mean, and I'm in the process of contacting some really great guests that I want on that podcast. It's just going to be a limited series. And basically what we've established in podcast land is I just like to keep really, really busy. Before we start on Josie, I uh, just want to say a massive thank you for the amazing feedback for Big Trouble in Little China. Um, but, you know, Big Trouble in Little China is a great movie. It's so fondly remembered. Uh, it's super popular nowadays. So... <laughs> Jess actually wants to leave the room, bizarrely. Um, but I'm not going to let her because I'm going to carry on. So I kind of expected that lots of people would like that episode. Krull was the last episode. Um, I mean... Krull is definitely not as well regarded as Big Trouble in Little China. But Josie and the Pussycats is really interesting because when I announced on Patreon that I was going to be doing Josie and the Pussycats, uh, it got the most positive attention. Like All of the patrons that responded said they were really excited about Josie and the Pussycats. So the general consensus, I think, is that this is an underrated gem that more people should see. And you know what? I completely agree. Um... So let's have a listen to the trailer for Josie and the Pussycats. For every band, there is a moment when they know they have made it. For one band, this is not that moment. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You're a great crowd. Okay, girls, we need the lane now. And your shoes. 
They were three small town girls with big time dreams. Who's a rock star? I am. Who wanted to share their music with the world. We can't sit around here waiting for it to happen. We are musicians. We should be out there playing music. We do play. Nobody believed in them. You know, you suck. <laughs> but they believed in themselves. We're special. Yeah, special Ed. <laughs> now. In a world of tough competition. And that is so sad. Fate is giving the Pussycats the chance of a lifetime. We'd love for you to sign with Mega Records. How am I going to pull this off? I'm a girl from Riverdale. I'm not a rock star. you got to believe in yourself. Things are finally going their way. But between the mania... Is that Joseph? They're going to be huge. The managers. We decide everything. What's hot and what's not. Welcome to your party. Who else thinks that Fiona's a freak? And the media. We're gonna be on TRL. Mm -hmm. yeah! This may be the toughest gig they've ever played. Have you noticed that everything has sort of become all about Josie? Josie. 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 Been around. I made you a rock star. Tell me you don't love that. Forget it. I never liked you. No matter what happens, we will always be friends first. Were you gonna kill me with the guitar? You messed with the wrong pussycat. My bad. Josie and the Pussycats. the record industry have inserted subliminal messages into music so they can turn teenagers into brain-dead zombies who do nothing but buy, buy, buy. And whenever the musician or band finds out the truth, the record company silences them to keep the truth from coming out. When the hot boy band du jour discovers this, their manager, Wyatt Frame, and his evil corrupt boss Fiona has the plane they're flying in crashed and him looking for a new band to use for their evil schemes. Enter Josie, Melody and Valerie, they are Josie and the Pussycats, a small band from Riverdale who want to make it big. When they're discovered by Wyatt, they get a number one single and a stadium tour within a week. But what is the cost of fame? And is friendship worth it when orange is the new pink? Let's quickly go through the cast of this movie. We have Rachel Lee Cook as Josie McCoy, Tara Reid as Melody Valentine, Rosario Dawson as Valerie Brown, Gabriel Mann as Alan M., Paulo Costanzo as Alexander Cabot, Missy Pyle as Alexandra Cabot, Alan Cumming as Wyatt Frame, Parker Posey as Fiona, and Tom Butler as Agent Kelly. Uh, additionally, we have Donald Faison, Seth Green, Brecken Mayer, and Alexander Martin as the band Du Jour, Carson Daly, Eugene Levy, and Mr. Moviephone, aka Russ Leatherman as themselves, uh, and co-director Harry Elfont cameos as the pilot of Du Jour's Plane. This movie was written and directed by Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan, uh, the writer-directors of Can't Hardly Wait, uh, as well as the co-writers of a very Brady sequel, The Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, Surviving Christmas, Maid of Honor and Leap Year. Josie and the Pussycats would unfortunately be the final film the pair directed. So the story of Josie and the Pussycats goes all the way back to Archie Comics, when cartoonist Dan DiCarlo spent the 1950s working for Atlas Comics. Atlas were, of course, the predecessor of Marvel Comics, and DiCarlo and the legendary Stan Lee worked together co-creating Willy Lumpkin before he had the idea for Josie. Josie was named after his wife, Josie DiCarlo, and the idea basically came from that she wore a cat costume on a Caribbean cruise, and this is where the idea of Josie and the Pussycats came from. Originally titled Here's Josie, he took Josie and another strip called Barney's Beat to United Feature in New York, who were interested in both, but DiCarlo felt that he couldn't do both. And so he shelved Josie and concentrated on Willie Lumpkin. When the Willie Lumpkin strip ended, he resubmitted Josie to Publishers Syndicate, who completely rejected the idea. He then decided to take it to Archie with the idea of doing it as a comic book. Josie was introduced in Archie's Pals and Gals number 23 in December 1962 and her solo series She's Josie debuted in February 1963. The series featured Josie, her friends Melody and Pepper, 
her boyfriend Albert, Pepper's boyfriend Socrates, aka Sock, and Albert's rival Alexander Cabot III and his twin sister Alexandra. The series was renamed Josie in December 1965, introduced Alan M in issue 42, and then became Josie and the Pussycats in December 1969 in issue 45. In this issue, Josie and Melody decide to start a band called the Pussycats and recruit new girl Valerie Smith to be the bassist. The characters of Albert, Sock and Pepper were phased out of the series and the Pussycats were given their famous and recognisable leopard print uniforms, cat ear headbands and long tails. On the other side of this story, we have Hanna-Barbera. They were founded in 1957 by Tom and Jerry creators William Hanna and Joseph Barbera in partnership with film director George Sidney. Uh, And they created a variety of cartoon series, starting with The Rough and Ready Show in 1957 and The Huckleberry Hound Show in 1958. Arguably the first animated sitcom, The Flintstones, premiered in 1960, which was the longest running animated American primetime show until 1997 when it was beaten by The Simpsons. 1961, The Yogi Bear Show and Top Cat premiered, and in 1962, The Jetsons debuted. Now, the overt violence of some of Hanna-Barbera's output caused parent-run organisations to force Hanna-Barbera to cancel action cartoons like Space Ghost, The Herculoids and Birdman and the Galaxy Trio in 1968. They were against the excessive violence shown to their children in these Saturday morning cartoons. And so to please the parent watch groups, Fred Silverman, the executive for daytime programming at CBS, commissioned Filmation to make The Archie Show, based on Bob Montana's comic book Archie, and included characters from Riverdale High School as a pop band called The Archies, which ended up having a real-life number one hit single in 1969 with the song Sugar Sugar. Like the Flintstones and the Jetsons before it, The Archie Show utilised a laughter track, And keen to replicate this formula, Hanna-Barbera, who considered Filmation a rival, attempted to make their own music-based teenage animated show. It wasn't Josie and the Pussycats, it was a show called Mysteries 5. Fred Silverman also contacted Hanna-Barbera about creating a similar show of a band of teenagers who solved mysteries on the side. Mysteries 5 originally started life as a show similar to The Archie Show. It would feature five teenagers along with their bongo-playing dog. The teens, Jeff, Mike, Kelly, Linda and WW, along with dog Too Much, collectively formed the band Mysteries 5. And when not performing gigs, they solved spooky mysteries. And if that sounds familiar, Mysteries 5 would become Scooby-Doo. And obviously, for more on Scooby-Doo, check out episode 62, uh, which also features Jess, actually, interestingly. To be completely honest with you, pretty much all of that information about Hanna-Barbera and Archie uh, and all of that, I kind of borrowed from the Scooby-Doo episode, just because it's also part of the history of Josie and the Pussycats, because... Hanna-Barbera decided to then go to Archie Comics and directly ask them about adapting one of their existing comic books in a similar vein to the Archie show. Josie and the Pussycats uh, animated TV show debuted in 1971 with 16 episodes. It also makes history with Valerie being the first regularly appearing black character in a Saturday morning cartoon show. Um, it's also one of those shows that you think there's more episodes than there actually are because genuinely there is only 16 episodes of this first season and Jess is very very vocal about this she really wants to leave the room (laughs) hang on a sec a few moments later but Josie and the Pussycats was essentially set out to dominate and after the Archies had a billboard number one with Sugar Sugar A Josie and the Pussycats real life band was hastily put together with hundreds of girls auditioning. Kathy Doer was cast in the band as Josie, Sherry Moore, better known as Cheryl Ladd, was Melody and Patrice Holloway as Valerie. Despite Valerie being black in the series and Patrice Holloway also being black, Hanna-Barbera actually preferred an all-white trio. Producer Danny Jansen refused And this allowed the band to release an album, which included some covers uh, and some original material. It was clear they wanted Josie and the Pussycats to be as big as the Archies. But despite the heavy investment, the band, the music and the animated series, the direction for Josie and the Pussycats changed. So I mentioned the original 16 episodes. So those original 16 episodes were rerun the following year. Um, And in 1972, the show was reconceptualised as Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space with a further 16 episodes. And this was treated as a spin-off where the Pussycats would encounter new worlds, often end up being captured and then escaping and returning to Earth. This series was cancelled, but the characters made one final animated appearance in 1973 in the new Scooby-Doo movies episode, The Haunted Showboat. 
Legal issues prevented their inclusion in the Laugh Olympics. From 1973 to 2001, there was no Josie and the Pussycats. But Archie Comics characters were being given a new lease of life in TV, namely Dan DiCarlo's other co-creation, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which issued its dark supernatural roots for a family-friendly sitcom, which ran from 1996 to 2003 and starred Melissa Joan Hart. It was an Archie property, it was female-centric, it was accessible for teenagers, and it was everything a reboot of Josie and the Pussycats could be. Rumours of a Josie and the Pussycats movie started circling, but Archie Comics had basically done what Marvel did in the 90s and had sold off the movie rights Josie and the Pussycat to Universal. So any decisions to do with the movie were completely out of their hands. Dan DiCarlo would file a lawsuit for ownership claims to the characters that he created, which led to him being fired by Archie Comics after an almost 40-year career, as well as losing the lawsuit only to be countersued by Archie. DiCarlo would die in December 2001 without gaining any real recognition or acknowledgement for his work for Archie, and nor would he live to see Josie and the Pussycats gain a cult following, which is remarkably sad when you remember that the character of Josie was named after his wife. But Universal, they obviously had the rights to Josie and the Pussycats, and they hung on to that. There was no script, but there were two writer-directors who were hankering for a new project, and they were Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont. In 1996, they had co-written a very Brady sequel, the sequel to the highly underrated 1995 movie version of The Brady Bunch. Sure, Jan. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm being serious. They'd then written and directed 1998's Can't Hardly Wait, which had been approved partially on the success of Scream, which I've also done an episode on the year before, and riding on the success of then-it girl Jennifer Love Hewitt. Can't Hardly Wait was a surprise success, bringing in double its budget, and being a hit on home video. Once Kaplan and Elfont realised that Universal were wanting to make a musical version of Josie and the Pussycats, that started to become really, really appealing. Their first idea was to take the Pussycats straight into outer space, uh, as per the rebooted animated series second season, before they settled on the idea of corporate America brainwashing teenagers through pop music. Producers had to be convinced, but Kaplan and Elfont loved the idea recalling the difference between music when you're an impressionable teenager to music as you grow into your 20s and 30s. And let's be honest, pretty much everyone starts out with some sort of pop music infatuation. Uh, For me personally, it was boy bands. Uh, My first concert was a boys' own concert, and I basically grew into loving like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And (laughs) yeah, and coincidentally, du jour are modelled on the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And let's not forget, du jour means family. Uh, Anyway, Kaplan and Elfont had the perfect Josie in mind, Rachel Lee Cook. She had auditioned for Jennifer Love Hewitt's role in Can't Hardly Wait and has since blossomed into an up-and-coming star after the huge success of She's All That. Maggie Gyllenhaal and Zoe Deschanel also auditioned, but Rachel Lee Cook just felt perfect for the role. And she really loved the script and she was offered the part of Josie. Universal had just had a huge hit in 1999 with American Pie and Tara Reid was a standout star from that movie and basically the director thought she would be the perfect melody and to be fair Reid's comic timing is absolutely spot on in this movie and Tara Reid didn't even have to audition for the part she just got it straight away. Uh, Valerie did have some interesting auditions though including the late great Aaliyah who auditioned off the back of Romeo Must Die Alia, rather tragically, and in a really weird twist of fate as well, especially when you realise in this movie how the pop music management are attempting to kill stars like du jour, Alia would actually die in a plane crash that very year. Still a complete tragedy for music in general because Alia was really, really huge at the time. Also auditioning for Valerie were TLC's Lisa Left Eye Lopez. She was also a megastar in the 90s. I was a massive TLC fan. Lopez would read across from Cook and although she was really keen, the directors weren't sure about her comedy chops uh, and ultimately Lisa Left Eye Lopez didn't get the part either. Also similarly tragically she would also pass away in 2002 after a fatal car accident. Um, now I'm not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination that these are linked to this movie. It's just a really really tragic unfortunate circumstance that two people who auditioned for this movie sadly died in horrific circumstances shortly after the movie came out. 
Possibly the most famous name to audition was Beyonce, Queen Bee herself. Beyonce was obviously one third of the biggest girl group at the time, Destiny's Child. I am still a massive Destiny's Child fan. And they were fresh off the soundtrack to Charlie's Angels, which is episode 12 of this podcast. Beyonce was super quiet and shy at the audition, so she didn't really fit the persona that they wanted for Valerie. Even Regina King auditioned for this role and she didn't get the part either. Uh, Rosario Dawson, however, did. They felt she had the right energy, the comedic timing, and the performance level needed for Valerie. Uh, She was also one to watch after starring in Spike Lee's He's Got Game and King of the Jungle. And it was the movie's naming of the character of uh, Valerie Brown instead of Valerie Smith that actually ended up canon for Josie and the Pussycats going forward. Similarly with Melody. Melody never had a surname in the cartoon. The movie gave her the name Valentine, and she's now Melody Valentine. Cook, Reed and Dawson would start production at Band Camp. And I don't mean that in an American Pie kind of way. Anyone who's seen American Pie will know what I mean. Where they learn to play their instruments and band, excuse the pun, together as a threesome. And they became actual, real-life, fast friends. The friendship that you see on screen between these three women is 100% real. They all had a genuine affection for each other. And they were all kind of on the up and up in different ways. Kaplan and Elfont hired a band called Powder to help the girls with their stage presences. Kay Hanley knew Deborah Kaplan from growing up in Boston. Hanley and Kaplan were kept in touch, and as Kaplan was an up-and-coming writer-director, and Hanley was the front woman of Letters to Cleo, she would go on to provide Josie's singing voice, but more about her a little bit later when I talk about the music. Sealing the deal on the casting would be two cult fan favourites, Alan Cumming and Parker Posey. Alan Cumming was a noted theatre actor and nowadays very much of a queer cult icon and was coming off the run of Circle of Friends, Goldeneye, Emma, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, Spice World, which Josie gets unfavourably bunched with in a lot of press articles I've read, as well as making his directorial debut the same year as Josie and the Pussycats with The Anniversary Party. He actually worked on The Anniversary Party and Josie and the Pussycats simultaneously. Parker Posey was labelled Queen of the Indies after starring in a string of indie films throughout the 90s, as well as big hits like You've Got Mail and Scream 3, and she basically admitted to taking the role for the paycheck. And admittedly, having the pairing of Posey and Cumming proved fruitful, as Parker Posey wasn't really too sure about how to figure out her character, because it was so different to any other role that she'd ever played. And basically, she just ended up playing off of Alan Cumming, and they basically worked together as a team. Uh, They figured out backstories for their characters, and it was Parker Posey who insisted that Fiona hadn't been overweight, as it said in the script, but instead had a speech impediment. And ultimately, the inclusion of Alan Cumming and Parker Posey is one of the reasons why I think this movie remains such a cult favourite. They are both fantastic in this movie. And obviously, I want to talk about the release and financials of Josie and the Pussycat in a bit, but you probably already know that this movie flopped. It, it flopped really hard, you know, in a box office is the new flop kind of way. And yet, 20 years later, it resonates in pop culture, unlike anything else that came out in 2001. You take away the very 2000s fashion and hair and music, and you just have an enduring story of female friendship, as well as this biting, smart, witty satire. Not only does this movie lampoon the music industry, it also deconstructs it while affectionately satirising it. In its very existence, it's both a criticism of corporate America based on a well-known comic book, an animated TV show that's been put together by a huge corporate movie studio. You know, it's here to sell movie tickets and CDs. So in many ways, it's both a parody and a criticism of its own existence. And I think it endures because it is so self-assured. It knows it defies all logic. It knows what it's all about. It's all about subliminal messages whilst also throwing these countless product placements at you and it's all completely ironic uh no company was paid for their products appearing either it was literally just the movie wanting to prove how ridiculous big corporations actually are and at the heart of it are three young women who simply have a dream they don't fit the cookie cutter shaped pop music existence they just want to be who they are no one fits the mold and that's kind of the point we should be allowed to be individuals Having three diverse, ambitious women at the heart of a smart, meta, relatable movie, let's be honest, it's not really a thing in movies of the early 2000s. And the fact that it has really, really fantastic music as well. 
I think it's one of the reasons why this movie feels like a bit of an enigma. And the thing is, is that the fans of this movie, they have big hearts and they have sharp claws. This movie seems to grow in adoration as every year passes. And it becomes just that little bit more widely recognised. Entertainment journalist Ross Burlingame is currently fundraising on Indiegogo for the release of a book detailing his years of research and interviews around Josie and the Pussycats and its endearing appeal. As of this recording, it's open for another month, so I'll pop a link in the show notes. It really does sound like a fascinating oral history. Right, moving on to this episode's obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of the podcast where I attempt to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And how does one link Keanu Reeves to Josie and the Pussycats? Uh, Well, I mean, it's not particularly difficult because Keanu himself is a rock star. He was the bassist and the backing vocalist of the band Dogstar, basically until he left to further pursue his acting career. Uh, But the band Dogstar was still around in 2001. They actually broke up in 2002. So technically, Keanu was a rock star in 2001 at the same time as Josie and the Pussycats. I'm not suggesting that the music of Dogstar has subliminal messages in, but Keanu is the greatest actor ever. Right, let's talk about the music of Josie and the Pussycats because the music is one of the best things about this movie. It has a full-blown soundtrack uh, that's available to purchase. But basically, after writing the script for Josie and the Pussycats, Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont knew that they wanted to write songs because if you're going to have a movie about a fictional band, that band needs to have some songs. They wanted punk songs, they wanted pop songs, um, and they brought together a team of professional songwriters And let's be honest, there are some songs on the soundtrack that are a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Backdoor Lover, for example, is lyrically ridiculous on purpose because they wanted the music to be slightly tongue-in-cheek, but also legitimately good 2000s pop music. And they obviously needed Josie to be able to sing. Unfortunately, Rachel Lee Cook didn't quite have the necessary vocals. All three members of the band, Rachel Lee Cook, Tara Reid and Rosario Dawson, would provide backing vocals for all of the songs. But the actual singing voice was Kay Hanley of the band Letters to Cleo. You'll remember Letters to Cleo from 10 Things I Hate About You. They are the band that's on the rooftop at the very end. And 10 Things I Hate About You, I spoke about in episode 58. And while I'll freely admit I was a big fan of boy bands when I was younger, I was also a big fan of bands like No Doubt and singer-songwriters like Alanis Morissette. So Letters to Cleo was one of those bands that really, really appealed to me as well. Working on the soundtrack was Kenneth Babyface Edmonds. And he's obviously been a producer working in music for decades. And he actually hired a different singer for the singing voice of Josie. But basically, the voice that they hired didn't actually sound like it would come out of Rachel Lee Cook's mouth. And so that was when Kay Hanley stepped up and she ended up performing all the songs as Josie, as well as writing one song for the soundtrack. And just a little bit on the soundtrack, because the soundtrack in its entirety is still so popular. It was actually re-released by Mondo on vinyl in 2017. They also had a throwback screening of the movie at the Alamo Drafthouse in L.A., which was attended by Rachel Lee Cook, Tara Reid and Rosario Dawson, which also featured a live performance of the soundtrack. I mean, that just doesn't happen for a movie that flopped at the box office 20 years ago. It just doesn't. So the fans of this movie are so passionate still, after 20 years, they are still buying this movie, they are still loving this movie, they are still buying the soundtrack. And it's it's a phenomenon, really. Josie and the Pussycats is an absolute out-and-out phenomenon. There is no movie like it. I mean, come to the end of this episode, I'm going to recommend some other episodes that I feel are slightly like it, but it feels completely unique in pretty much every regard. And it's a movie that I've kind of grown to love. I actually only saw it for the first time myself last year, and I just fell in love with it straight away. And it was one of those I didn't realise why people didn't like it in 2001. And I have theories as to why people didn't like it, and I'm going to come to them. Because the marketing of this movie, I think, is the first issue um, that this movie has. Because Rachel Lee Cook, Tara Reid and Rosario Dawson, they actually adorned the cover of the February 2001 Spring Movie Preview issue of Entertainment Weekly. 
Entertainment Weekly is a huge magazine in America. And as the marketing machine started to drum up interest for Josie and the Pussycats, but behind the scenes, Universal were getting cold feet about this movie. And this was despite female-centric films doing well at the box office in recent years, you know, such as aforementioned Charlie's Angels. And even if Josie and the Pussycats didn't do well at the cinema, DVD sales were still high enough back in the early 2000s that films often made their budgets back in the home entertainment arena. So they really shouldn't have been all too worried. And the problem was that Harry Elfond had heard news from Universal that the signs for Josie and the Pussycats weren't looking all that promising. And basically what they did is they assigned it an April release date. And the problem with this was back in 2001, April was really not a good month to release your high profile girl power pop culture movie. The other issue with the marketing of this movie was that Universal marketed this movie specifically at the preteen market. And let's be honest, a 10-year-old girl is not going to understand this movie. I'm not discrediting 10-year-old girls, um, but they're not going to get it. You know, the irony of a movie which talks about subliminally marketing products to teenagers that has a marketing department that can't sell the product to teenagers is not lost on me. And I think that was the main issue for Josie and the Pussycats, was that they basically sold it to the wrong audience. And because of Universal's lack of confidence in this movie and the really dire marketing, when Josie and the Pussycats was released on the 11th of April 2001 in the US, it was actually released a few days before Bridget Jones's diary. Um, and obviously everyone knows how well Bridget Jones's diary did. In the first week, it made $2 million. It basically entered the chart at number 16. And that was because it was released towards the end of the week. So it only had a couple of days. The following week, it was actually had a full week at the box office. It jumped up to number seven and it added another $6.5 million. This movie was reportedly made for $39 million. Although this is disputed by the directors, they claim it's more like $30 million. Josie and the Pussycats, after its run at the box office, would only make $14.9 million worldwide. So not even half of its budget. The other issue for Josie and the Pussycats was critics didn't get it either. You had a movie that was being mismarketed, released in the wrong month for a movie like this, and the critics kind of savaged it. Roger Ebert famously said, Josie and the Pussycats are not dumber than the Spice Girls, but they're as dumb as the Spice Girls, which is dumb enough. Despite being Entertainment Weekly cover stars a few months prior, Entertainment Weekly heavily criticised the movie and critics just didn't get it. They thought it was smug. They thought it was self-assured that the movie was criticising product placement but containing product placement because no one understood what Meta was in 2001. One famous person really did understand the movie and loved the movie and that was U2 lead singer Bono. He met with Deborah Kaplan at one of his concerts and gushed about Josie and the Pussycats and said he thought it was fantastic. So basically, Deborah Kaplan said, well, you know, critics didn't like our movie, but at least Bono liked it. I mean, that's something, I guess. Because Josie and the Pussycats did so badly at the box office, obviously there was no talk of a sequel. But had there been a sequel, Deborah Kaplan confirmed it probably would have taken place in outer space, just like the animated series second season. And the thing is, if you look at the legacy of Josie and the Pussycats, sure, this movie didn't do great. It's definitely found a cult following now. But before the days of cinematic universes, there had been plans for more Archie Comics movies. Had Josie and the Pussycats been a hit? There were plans for an Archie movie, a Jughead movie, and a Betty and Veronica movie. Nothing obviously materialised, but what did were hit TV shows. Uh, I'm talking Riverdale, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and Katie Keene. They are all Archie Comics properties and they are all doing incredibly well in TV format. And obviously the characters of Josie and the Pussycats are now appearing in Riverdale. So the legacy of Josie and the Pussycats does continue, just not these Josie and the Pussycats, which is obviously a massive disappointment considering how absolutely terrific this movie is. I mentioned earlier about patrons were really, really keen on this movie and I've got a lot of patron thoughts to go through. So we will start with Andy from Geek Salad, who said, I haven't seen this in forever, so I'm not sure how well it's aged. It's definitely a product of its era, where a property from the early 70s updated with early aughts old pop. 
The cast is quite good and many of them have moved on to bigger things and Tara Reid starred in Sharknado and used to date Tom Brady so there's that as well. This nudge might prompt me to watch it again if I can find it on any of my streaming services. And just a note on streaming services, in the UK, Josie and the Pussycats is non-existent. It's not even available to rent on a streaming service here in the UK. So um, if you want it here in the UK, you're going to have to buy it on DVD. But anyway, I always like to give a little plug for my patrons. And uh, obviously, Andy pretty much comments every single time, unless it's anime, because historically we know Andy doesn't like anime. And you should know who Geek Salad are, based on that, if you are a regular listener. But obviously, they are an all-encompassing geek podcast. They cover movies, music, games, TV shows, pretty much anything and everything to do with geek culture. Uh, And obviously, you can find them in your podcast app of choice. And as always, I'll pop a link in the show notes. We also have The Vern from Cinema Recall, and he said, Josie and the Pussycats doesn't get enough love as it should. Its satire of how pop culture is marketed to the masses was brilliant. Sometimes the things I enjoy, I've got to think I was conditioned to like it. In any case, the movie is funny, the characters are great, and the soundtrack rocks. Every song in this movie is really good. I'm kind of mad Josie and the Pussycats is not a real band. And I mean, they kind of are, because they do kind of have a hit soundtrack out there. But I know that Cinema Recall have done an episode on Josie and the Pussycats, so I will pop a link to that in the show notes. And Cinema Recall love discussing iconic moments in film. Recent episode collections have focused on Femme Fatales in February. They also did a season on Brian De Palma in December. And obviously Cinema Recall love cult movies, which is why Josie is right to his alley. And obviously links for Cinema Recall are also in the show notes. We also have the Midnight Myth podcast commenting and they say, I hope I'm not too late on this. I just rewatched Josie recently. I was a huge fan of Archie comics growing up and all the 90s, early 2000s properties it spawned before Riverdale took Archie and Friends in a different direction. This movie is almost painfully dated. Remember TRL, Carson Daly and Tara Reid, CDs, but it's like a time capsule of my adolescence. It's charming, incredibly cheeky and the music is pretty good. Dujour was in my bathroom. <laughs> I love, I love Dujour. That's me, by the way, not the Midnight Myth. Although I'm sure the Midnight Myth loved Dujour too. Looking at these thoughts, I'm, I'm assuming these are baby Arthurs. Uh, but I'm joking. Obviously, it's Laurel. Uh, she and her husband Derek host the Midnight Myth along with Baby Arthur because Baby Arthur comes along for the ride now. Arthur was only born in January. And despite being sleep-deprived new parents, they are still putting out amazing content. The Midnight Myth are one of the most well-researched and knowledgeable podcasts out there in the podosphere. So make sure you listen. I will also pop a link to them in the show notes. And the final patron commenting is Luke. And he says, I watched this once when it was released on DVD and I was genuinely surprised at how funny it was. It had gags that would make the kids laugh and jokes that would appeal to adults and go over kids' heads completely. I still remember the silly gags like Tara Reid holding up a sign saying, Honk if you love pussycats, but not raising the sign up high enough to read the word cats. It was a genuine delight and a surprise at the time which parodied the manufactured boy band music sector, yet the music was still fun and memorable. The cast is great, especially the wonderful Parker Posey as a villain who is so good in this. I loved it at the time, I really need to watch it again, but it seems to be difficult to get hold of on streaming platforms. And you have inspired me to buy the DVD to give this a much needed rewatch. And Luke, I am delighted. And yes, just reaffirming you cannot get it on streaming services here in the UK. But if you are interested, the DVD is super cheap on Amazon. So get yourself a copy of the DVD. It is so worth it. Let's move over to some thoughts on Twitter. We will start with at Sea Fever Dreams, who said, Great film, overlooked because of the source material, but smarter than people give it credit for. The fact they pulled it and released a family-friendly cut in stores should tell you it was mishandled at release. At Breaking the Fourth said, Can we just get some love for Alan Cumming? Seriously, one of my favourite performances of his. I die every time he says, fancy a mint, when Missy Pyle says, fancy a snog. At Matt Really though said, I remember this being funny. It's been a mint since I've seen it though. At Licence to Queer said, Josie and the Pussycats is one of the best movies ever. Actually true though. Love that film. Have the soundtrack on vinyl. Way ahead of its time and so misunderstood. At Queer XO said, One of my fave movies. So much so that I wrote about it for Flip Screen this week. Can't wait for this episode to hear your thoughts. 
And uh, Jenny Holtz, who wrote that final comment, included a link to their article and it's brilliant. So I will put that in the show notes. Moving over to Instagram, we have at FWM underscore pod who said, I remember on your Scooby-Doo episode, you said something to the effect of this is the most early 2000s movie to ever early 2000s. Well, I offer up Josie and the Pussycats as a worthy challenger of that title. Quotable without trying to be, flawless performances from all involved. And do we have this movie to thank for launching Rosario Dawson's career? I say yes. 10 out of 10. Also, hi Jess. And I'm sure you can hear her jingling in the background. Um, She is around at the moment. I don't know how long she'll stick around. She also says hi back. And um, she's really jingly right now. I did say that in the Scooby-Doo episode. And uh, and I genuinely do think that Josie and the Pussycats really does 2000 incredibly hard. And Jess obviously agrees. At Movies at the Mat said... Love this movie since the day I first saw it. It's an underrated gem with a fantastic cast, excellent music and still makes me laugh. It may have a few parts that are dated, looking at you Carson Daly and TRL, but the overall concept is as relevant as ever. And moving over to Facebook, we have Christopher who said, This was so much more intelligent than I was expecting and a whole lot of fun to boot. I only first watched it back in 2019 when my then co-host suggested it as a watch. I've been in his debt ever since. Jess says a massive thank you to everyone for their comments on Josie and the Pussycats. Josie and the Pussycats could have very easily been just a straightforward adaptation of its material. It could have been Crossroads, uh, the ill-fated Britney Spears vehicle from the following year. And that's no disrespect to Crossroads at all. Crossroads is good in its own way, sort of. Um, I have have a lot of respect for Britney. But it would be very easy for Josie and the Pussycats to have done that. But this movie dared to be different. It had a cartoonish villain. It had catchy music and emphasised female friendship. But it was also sharp and satirical. It feels way ahead of its time in so many respects. Despite the body glitter, spaghetti straps and hipster bootcut jeans and yes, they were all the thing in the early 2000s. It made fun of itself just as much as it made fun of consumerism. It mocked pop culture, MTV, screaming hysterical fans whilst also highlighting the way companies profit off dead celebrities. But really, if you look at it, Josie and the Pussycats knew too much. Josie and the Pussycats was too smart for its own good. Sometimes the best satire isn't fully appreciated or realised till it's too late. And if you look at the modern world of social media, how easy it is to get brainwashed into believing that you want the latest iPhone and that you have to have the latest iPhone. Social media sends subliminal and obvious messages to us all using complex algorithms to determine what messages to send and to whom. Modern corporations use the knowledge it has on us to trick us to sell to us and to influence our decisions and our thoughts. Josie and the Pussycats warned us. We just didn't listen in 2001. Does your means we're the idiots. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Josie and the Pussycats. And just to let you all know, Jess has left the room and she has not returned. I did plan this episode to be an episode with me and Jess, just like we did on Scooby-Doo. But no, she's decided to leave the room and... You know, the door is open. She is welcome to come in. She chose not to. She is not in for the satire and the 2000s pop music right now. But, you know, it's fine. Like, she's a cat. What do cats know about satire and and 2000s pop music? Obviously not a lot. If you do like this episode or any episode that I've done, uh, if you could take a moment to rate and review on something like Apple Podcasts, Or alternatively, you can help this podcast immensely by spreading the word, telling your friends and family, let them know about this podcast. And if you do like this episode on Josie and the Pussycats, you might also like the following episodes. So I'm going to be recommending episode 12, Charlie's Angels, because it's also a fun movie that highlights female friendship. The women in it are outstanding. And it's also referenced in this movie because uh, there's an article headline that says Cameron Drew and Lucy to play pussycats in movie. And I I really like that. I'm also going to recommend episode 21, Legally Blonde, because in that movie, Elle mentions whoever thought Orange was the new pink was seriously disturbed. And I'm thinking it might be in reference to this movie in some small way. And if so, I love that completely. 
because there's no way that L would be duped by subliminal messages because L Woods is too smart for that. Episode 27, Clueless, because duh. Also, Brecken Mayer and Donald Faison are in Clueless and they're also in De Jour. De Jour means Clueless. Episode 58, 10 Things I Hate About You, obviously for the Kay Hanley reference. And also this movie does say Heath Ledger is the next Matt Damon. Heath Ledger was the next Matt Damon. See also episode 44, A Knight's Tale. I adore Heath Ledger completely and he is always worth your time. And finally, episode 62, Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo came out the following year. It's also an adaptation of the Hanna-Barbera cartoon. And it's also mega 2000s in every way, but arguably not as good as this movie. So there's that. Obviously, as always, give me feedback on my recommendations. I'm quite proud of my recommendations this episode. Uh, But let me know, what do you think? Do you think I got it right? The next episode is the final of this little cult movie marathon that I'm doing in March. Um, So I've done 80s movies and I've done a movie from the 2000s. So I wanted to go into the 90s and I wanted to go specifically for an action movie. And this is a movie written by Shane Black. It is directed by Rennie Harlan. And arguably it's a movie that deserved to be a massive hit, but it just wasn't. It's since become a fan favourite and it's also a fantastic Christmas movie. If I hadn't covered Gremlins at Christmas, it may have very well been The Long Kiss Goodnight. The next episode, out next week, will be The Long Kiss Goodnight. If you want to follow this podcast on social media, you can do. It is at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. I also have a Patreon account, which is patreon.com slash Verbal Diorama. I'm always so grateful to the people who choose to become patrons of this podcast. And I always like to give them a shout out every episode. So a massive thank you to Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Matt, Trevor and Scott. Dujour means excellent patrons. I do also have a merch store as well, which is teespring.com slash stores slash verbal diorama. You can buy t-shirts and hoodies and mugs and stuff. I have recently revamped my website, verbaldiorama.com. I've said I'll do it for ages and I've finally done it. So you can check out the brand new website, verbaldiorama.com. And you can email me at verbaldiorama at gmail.com if you want. Also, I write for film stories, you can check out the magazine, you can check out the online articles, and basically just support film stories, because you should always support small business. Jess, do you have anything you want to say to the listeners? Do you like Josie and the Pussycats? Yeah? Is it your favourite? Because it's got cats in it. They're not real cats, you know. Okay, I, I know that you know. You know, you're a cat. I don't know what you know. Okay, she's gone again. She's really upset. I didn't know that she didn't know that they weren't real cats. She's fine, by the way. She's a complete drama queen. (laughs) She says bye. And finally... Oh my God, it's the show! I love them so much! Sure.